Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Podcast Partners. I'm really excited with this next session, which is going to be about moral quotient, integrity, values, principles, belief, which are very pertinent with all that's been going on in the news. But let me uh, get the two of us to introduce ourselves. Would you introduce yourself? Hi, Jonathan. Graham here. So I'm a newcomer to the Inspiring Leadership Podcast, obviously, here to really play second fiddle to the man himself, Jonathan, and hopefully provide a few stories about moral leadership. I'm a podcaster myself, so maybe I've got some insights and stories to share. Looking forward to this. And as you say, Jonathan, what a week to talk about moral leadership. So I'm sure we're going to dive in yeah. in a minute. Well, Yourself? Graham Brown, I'm really pleased to have you on here. So Jonathan Bowman-Perks, um, I love broadcasting. Graham's been a great inspiration to me. I think he's one of the best I've come about in the field as an agent and both as a great podcaster. And storytelling is really at the heart of what I'm doing at the moment. I'm doing a certified program to become a world-class speaker's coach. And mm. I'm learning lots of the things that Graham's told me about, but they're being reinforced. I've got a session on that with the guys in America this afternoon, and I'm nice. very excited. So um, let's go straight into um, uh, audience questions that were sent to us be, be, between the last session, which was the intro session last month, into this month's session. Um, two questions, Graham. First one, what, what do you and I think about, what are our views on Boris Johnson? Um, was it rule-breaking or is this just trivialities? And really the big things like Brexit and the war in Ukraine are much more important. And we're getting carried away with small stuff. What do you think? <laughs> Small stuff for small people. Is that the insinuation? <laughs> it's been an interesting week, isn't it? Or a number of weeks with the leadership in the UK. And I guess for your listeners who are outside the UK, Boris Johnson is the outgoing member of the ruling party, the Conservative Party, um, from a particular background, isn't he? That would be easily identifiable. Public school, Eton, I think, was he? Yeah. Um, so those remarks about the small things, it's almost like, a put down, isn't it? That mm. maybe we, and it's almost like storytelling, trying to reframe it, isn't it? That this doesn't matter. But actually he, what matters is he was convicted or he was fined for hosting parties inside Downing Street, the seat of power during the COVID lockdown. And I think what really riled people is that they went through quite a brutal lockdown in the UK for some time, didn't they? Yeah. And to see the leadership flout that morally in a uh, in well there was a distinct lack of morals they would have had a compass to tell them this isn't right but there's that attitude of well we can get away with it i'm not impressed jonathan what about you yeah well it's so interesting and you talk about people in the uk were very offended by what we call party gate uh and then he had someone who'd already been uh found guilty of um being a sexual predator or something similar to that and he appointed him as the what he called the deputy chief whip the man in charge of discipline and when people mm. have a breakdown or have personal problems they can go and cry on the shoulder of this person who is completely unsuitable for being anybody to mentor anybody else 
Mm. Um, but but Boris appointed him knowing his his behaviour and uh, and still went ahead of it. But the papers, what have the papers been saying about it? I'll talk about that in a moment. Before I talk about that, let me make it very personal. So sadly, my wife, Lee, her mother died during the pandemic. Mm. And, and we we were able at the time, things were slightly loosened up. But all we could do was we could have a funeral service for her um, at uh, the, the place where her, her ashes uh, were done. And but we couldn't sing. We couldn't do various things. We certainly couldn't have a party after or or get together. We had to all be mm. distanced from each other, all wearing masks, all that kind of stuff. And and certainly with my brother David dying, I couldn't go and see him in hospital. I wasn't allowed to go there. So I didn't, you know, I couldn't say goodbye to him before he died uh, of, of cancer. And and so to have Boris and his um, mm. the people who were running the country saying, you can't do this. These are the rules. Don't break them. But they don't apply to me. Indeed, it's very interesting. You can find a track record on a leader, how they're going to behave, how they were when they were younger. When he was at Eton, his mm. housemaster wrote about him. Boris doesn't think the rules apply to him. And that was identified about him as a school child. Now, what do the, what do the papers say? Um, the Observer. Uh, when unspe unspeakable finally bowed to the inevitable, his sour resignation statement contained not the hint of humility, a scintilla of contrition. Yeah, he came and stood in front of number 10 Downing Street and basically um, laid the blame out everywhere else, but not himself. No apology. No, nothing about his behavior as integrity. In his speech, he presented himself as the victim of bad luck. Then them's the breaks, was what he said, and relentless sledging from the media. He claimed he'd been trampled underfoot by the herd of panicky colleagues who'd made the eccentric decision to dump Emotional. Him. Yeah. And, and, and as I say, um, the fact that Boris is a serial liar and lacks the oh. discipline to apply himself to hard problems, the economist said, uh, that's the problem. And he's leaving in disgrace because of his dishonesty and rule breaking. And mm. it's interesting that uh, my American colleagues, when they look at us and they go, we love the Brits, you're quite quaint. You know, we have Trump mm. and he does all sorts of things. He storms the Capitol and things like this. And you have a chap who, you know, lies a bit, has some parties, appoints the wrong people, bad decisions, can't tell the truth, got fired when he was working for the Times, got fired when he was in the Conservative Party for lying. And you get rid of him. He actually goes. Yeah. You, you actually get rid of him. Um, so, so I think it gives us a lovely example of many of the leaders that you and I meet in business who so believe their own story, their, their own reframing of reality, that, that they've done great things for the country and he leaves on a high. Well, actually, there's a picture on the front of one of the magazines with him being dragged out by two sort of <laughs> number 10 people because he wouldn't go. He just didn't see he had to go and thought he could tough it out. And I think this is a problem with too many leaders. They don't get 360 mm. feedback. They don't understand how people see things and they, they lose their moral compass and they are rudderless. And so anything goes, anything mm. goes. You know, meeting with uh, Lebedev, um, the, the Russian whose father was in the KGB and Boris broke away from his security contingent, went rogue, went off and met with him. Shady. Just completely unacceptable. It doesn't anyway, wash, does it? It doesn't wash. So There's a lot so, of yeah, questions. There's a lot of questions. So we could talk much more about him, but I, mm. um, I want to go to the second question that we had. What about Travis uh, Kalanick uh, and the Uber culture and values, mm. which was in the revelation with all those huge number of documents? 
about the alpha male uh, culture and sexual harassment. What's what's your view? Yeah, this has just come out recently. So to put it into context, Uber, you know, the darling of Wall Street, um, the startup unicorn, I think it's $60 billion in valuation at the height. And really, it was held up as a paragon of what startup success looks like, because it grew exceptionally fast. It was a platform, it wasn't actually selling anything apart from connecting data, you know, between a driver and a passenger, you know, two taxis, and then it had the food delivery service as well. So it was in the spotlight, but then all this come out, I believe 130,000 documents were shared um, to the extent emails, you know, internal memos and so on about documenting lack of moral integrity. And I wouldn't say it's not just him. I imagine there's a lot of people involved in this, but what's really interesting, I mean, you mentioned Boris as an example, and you mentioned Trump. And something that I would like to touch upon today, and love to get your thoughts on this, Jonathan, and also the listeners, is that I don't think there there are absolute truths when it comes to morals. There aren't good people and bad people. There's not good and evil in the world. I'm not one of those people who believes in that sort of dualist reality of black and white. I believe that there's a sliding scale. And um, what tends to happen is that people who are slightly towards one side then get into scenarios like with Travis Kalanick, where they have access to power and influence and can control people's lives. Mm. And then that is where the moral chips fall, if you like, you know, what side do they come down on? Does that person actually abuse it? And maybe, you know, people will abuse it a little bit here, a little bit there, but then maybe some people kind of take that as reinforcement. And then, you know, maybe early on, like with Boris and his privilege at Eton, yeah, maybe he got that reinforcement and that kind of compelled him through this sort of process. And maybe he started off like not too morally wayward, but when given access to resources, and we'll see this as well, you know, it'd be great to talk about how morally unfit people get elected or get into leadership positions, you know, what then happens? How does that turn out? Why do morals go astray? You know, what is the process? So I think, you know, that's what I'm thinking when I read Travis Cullen, I've seen this guy speak. He is a nice guy. He's convincing. He doesn't look like a psychotic narcissist. So you have to ask the questions about what is in fact, you know, what is influencing? How do they get into these situations and how do they behave as opposed to is that person immoral or moral? Mm. Yeah, I, I think it's you're touching on something really interesting. And um, one CEO said to me, when you become a CEO, you're not dealing with black and white. You're dealing with shades of gray. Huh. And, it, and it's quite hard to know whether there's no easy answer. You know, as Churchill said, um, to, you know, all all methods of ruling a country are flawed. But democracy, in my opinion, is the least worst option. Hmm. And often as leaders, you're having to make the least worst decision. But there, everything is possible if you're prepared to pay the price and live with the consequences. And, and in many cases, they're very high. But it is interesting, and I, I look back in my days as an army officer, where we partied hard and we, we fought to save the country and some of us died in the process and friends of mine did and, or was so severely injured that they're living with the PTSD or the loss mm. of limbs even now. 
but but when we parted, some went beyond the boundary. There's almost like the unwritten rules of what good, you know, I was appointed the officer in charge of showing good form. <laughs> like I had to do fun things that weren't vandalist. And, and sometimes some thought, oh, I'll just, you know, smash things up like Anassis did, you know, smashing all the plates up in a restaurant, every single plate, he and, and uh, Maria Callas. But then you know, here, I'll pay for them all. You know, that was that acceptable? You know, but all the poor staff had to clean it all up. And mm. after, I'll just give them some money. And I think some people who are so privileged, like the, you saw the Bullingdon Club and, and Cameron, mm. the previous prime minister, and Boris were part of this, and some disgusting behavior went on, drinking to the point of vomiting everywhere, ripping things up, burning stuff, smashing a room, completely trashing it, but then paying for it all because we're good fellows. And like, how acceptable is that? Mm. You know, the difference we used to say between a soldier doing that and an officer doing that was an officer, it was showing good form, but a soldier, he was sent to jail for that. So mm. like, where does the, you know, one rule for the privileged elite, and another rule for the rest of the country. And this was where Boris thought, you lot out there, the great unwashed, I'll motivate you and be a real good fellow and, you know, scruffy hair and, hey, that's okay, but I can really do what I want. And there's a very, very funny uh, comedian who does a complete outtake on Boris. And he goes, you know, it doesn't really matter how I behave or what I do. And the fact that while married, I still keep making various secretaries pregnant. It doesn't matter, you know. Uh, he's a good fellow and, you know, he'll do the right thing for us and he'll win us votes. So really, whatever he does, as long as he wins his votes, we'll put up with it. And it's very interesting. Do you commit to doing the right thing or do you condone and collude mm. with bad behavior? Which actually takes it on to making it personal for you and me next. Let's, mm. let's make this, this personal. Uh, commit or collude. Commit or collude? Do you, do you commit to doing the right thing and driving on and getting things done, which are high integrity? Or do you collude with people who are a bit shady, doing things, mm -hmm. finding a way around? What, what's, what's your experience? <laughs> I'll talk a bit about mine. Yeah, this is going to be interesting. I'm sure both of us are going to, you know, reveal that we're not perfect, <laughs> you know, and we're, we're flawed. Like a lot of the leaders we talk about in the last episode, they had human flaws, didn't they? Yeah. And um, with myself personally, I was thinking about this because I knew you were going to ask this question. Um, I found myself in a morally compromised position once. And just I'll put it out there. I, I was fully clothed. There wasn't anything to do with, there wasn't any paparazzi there. It was nothing like that. Um, I'll tell you what it was. I, um, I got off a flight um, coming back to the UK and my business partner had said to me, uh, we've got a booking with a client. I want you to go and do the presentation. And got off a flight, took the taxi in London to go and do this presentation. It's with an advertising agency. We used to work a lot with ad agencies in the day. And they would pay very good money to go and do these presentations about young people because we used to do research on young people. So it was just normal. And I just actually came off a flight, flying in from somewhere else in the world to do a presentation paid by a client. So just part of the routine, turn up at the ad agency. Um, I remember at that time, because the business was kind of new, like we needed the money. So this was a good client. And the what should have been a red light, my partner said to me, um, they had somebody ready to do the presentation, but they pulled out last minute. I said, oh no, we're kind of busy. He's on a flight. Okay, we'll pay double. All right, fine, we're there. 
cash. <laughs> We're there. We're going. We need the money. Turn up. Ad agency meets us in their plush office, go and sit down and do the presentation. We sit around the table talking about ad agency type things, advertising things as it was back in the day. And they said, oh, um, here's the client. And they just came in and just very um, casually sat down. It just been outside. And then they sat down and said, okay, let's, let's do the presentation. I started, didn't tell me who the client was. And then about five minutes in, talking about young people and how they use technology and how we need to influence or connect with them, I found out the client was a tobacco company. Wow. And I sat there and I thought, I found myself in a morally compromised position. We'd taken the money, we'd been paid, and here I was, what do you do? And it's not, I think this is kind of how we face these scenarios, isn't it? How leaders get into these scenarios. They're like, okay, I'm in this situation. What do I do? And you've got all kinds of things going on, but the, probably the last thing in your mind is, do I do the good thing? You're probably thinking of, how do I get out of this? How do I, you know, okay, how do we sort the, the money out? Or how do I do this without causing a scene? Or, you know, all these kind of things going through your head that prevent you from making a decision that is morally right. And I found myself in that situation. I was completely caught out by surprise. And um, so I've been there. And mm. so you know the outcome of the situation. I stopped the presentation straight away. And I didn't walk out and said, no, I'm not doing this. I said, look, I'm not going to talk to this, this company. I'm just going to talk to you, the ad agency, and just do the presentation to you. And you probably could argue that was probably morally wrong for me to do that. But I needed the money mm. at the time. And we were a young company. I was young at the time, needed the cash, needed the client. Um, and I, I justified that morally to myself that actually, if I just spoke to the ad agency, the client wouldn't find out. And it was completely nonsense if you thought about it. I was so naive at the time. But I think that's how we get morally compromised. I've been there and I've made the wrong decisions and I regret doing that. Mm. Um, but I've justified it in my head. Like, oh, you know, they pay another person to do the presentation or they'll give them the info anyway. What difference will my presentation make, mm -hmm. et cetera. So I've been there. Yeah, we've colluded. Well, look, let me tell uh, a couple and then you can come in with another. I think you've probably got another story. So uh, two in business and one in, in as an army officer. Uh, the two in business, probably 20 years ago, a similar thing that you've triggered in me. Um, again, uh, in a business, tr trying to win clients, got given this client that said she wants to work with you. And um, I said to her, they told me that she'd worked with another coach and she had just fired him within about an hour of spending time with him. Just treat him like dirt, just got rid of him, no. So I checked with her, I said, have you, have you met any other coaches? Have you, you know, interviewed any of the coaches, uh, vetted anybody? She goes, nope, never met any other coaches. Now, at that stage, I knew she was lying. Yeah, alarm but bells. I went, but, but I need the money. I need, I need perhaps, mm. perhaps I can change her. Maybe that she's a liar, but I can change her. Now, as it turned out, she was a white collar psychopath. Um, right. She'd bully people and then she'd give them presents afterwards. And I learned this because I went around the office once with somebody else. And I said, there's lots of lovely flower arrangements and boxes of chocolates. Is it someone's birthday? She goes, oh no, those are presents from this person. I went, why was she giving them presents? Oh, normally when she shouts or screams at them, 
or tears them into shreds, she then the next day she'll bring them a present and say sorry and make up with them and she's charming. And a bit like, you know, you talked about with Kalanick, absolutely charming and lovely. Mm, and, you meet her. Mm. And, and, and she tried to sort of play with my head and start saying that I shouldn't have done something or other. And then I started mm. feeling, luckily I had coaching supervision, which is what you must have. Because when I took it to supervision, they went, you're being played like a fish, just like she's mm. doing with the others. It, it's a intimidating mirror, you. And you've got yeah. to challenge her and bring it to a close. So I challenged her and said, I'm, I'm actually going to bring the coaching to a close. Went, no, no, I promise I will change. Please, I need your help. You know, you're going to really help me because it'll, it'll help me keep my job. Because, you know, if I do well, I'm, I'm sure I'll get back on track. And this is just an aberration. And so I stayed with her thinking I could change her. But the thing yeah. I'd learned about psychopaths, the dark trad, narcissistic, psycho psychopathy and Machiavellianism is they can charm you that they're going to change. Boris is going to get better. He promises he won't shag anybody else and, and he'll always tell the truth from here on in. And, and you believe them because they're such nice people and they're so charming and mm. win you over and they're in. And this is where the the sort of charismatic, inspiring side of women and men as leaders, you go, oh, they're so great leaders. Yep. No, they're absolutely evil to, to the pure core of them. So, so that was that one. And then talking about evil people, and uh, uh, I was just thinking for a moment of Putin, uh, who was very inspiring yeah. and very- Very uh, charming as well. Very, Let's put it very out. charming, very convincing. Uh, if you're sitting at the far end of the table and he's uh, talking to the Kremlin, you know you're about to be shot under the yes. table. <laughs> but uh, like in some Bond movie. But um, I, I had this guy who found me through uh, LinkedIn, oh, again, about 15, 20 years ago. Uh, he said, look, I'd really love to work with you, came and talked to me. He was working in an investment bank and he started describing his bosses. Hmm. And I went, well, they sound like they're, they're white collar psychopaths. I had a bit of a thing at that time about having been burnt. I learned all about them, studied them in great depth, met, read that book, uh, Why CEOs Fail and um, Snakes in Suits When Psychopaths Go to Work, which are two great books for anybody listening. Um, and, and, and I had this list of this sort of psychopath hunting list, you know, what to look out for. And he, he read through it, went, yep, 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 yep. He said, they're all like that. I said, great, okay. So do you want my help in getting away from them, leaving that organization? going somewhere else. And he went, no, actually, I want you to teach me to be like them. I went, no, no. And actually, this, time, this time, I actually did get it right, having got it wrong before. And I went, yeah. I, it's not for me. You need to find somebody else. This is not what I do. This is not what I do. Amazing. Uh, thank you. And I thought, part of, as I escorted him out of the, uh, my office, I thought, isn't it ironic? Here's a British army officer with a former Russian army officer now working in investment banking in the city of London for one of the big bulge bracket American banks. And, and here he is thinking that he wants to be a white collar psychopath because that's what gets the money. Yeah, that's um, easier than in uniform. Yeah, exactly. And in uniform, the final brief, quest, uh, brief story of me getting it wrong was uh, and, and losing the sort of moral compass for a, for a while was uh, doing the mountain marathon and we were near the end of day one and a team of three. And, and we'd been told that we were near the front of the field, 80 teams from around the world, mm. but that we were dropping back a bit. And so when the two in my team, the two Scots, I cannot go on, boss. I am knackered. You know, I cannot feel my legs. Let's sit down. And the other guy, <clears throat> a big uh, burly Scottish sergeant, looked at me as if like, if you think you're hard, take me on. You know, stop me sitting down. Uh, okay, okay, let, let's, let's sit down. So I sort of sat down too and I thought, 
no, this is so wrong. And I had a sort of almost like a, uh, a vision of my father, my late father, like sort of Tom Cruise and Top Gun, sitting on a, on, a, on a cloud with his flying gear. And he goes, hey, commit to win it or collude with them and come 10th. Your choice. He said, no one knows who came 10th, but they always remember who won. What are you going to do, boy? And I went, yeah, I've got, I've got to do the right thing, haven't I? And so I said, come on, let's get going. And they were all grumbling and complaining. But we ran uh, and it led to us winning the world championships and nice. still holding the world record. But I colluded for too long. And, and, and it's easy to give in, isn't it? So what about you? Have, you? have you had situations where you've sort of gone with the easy option rather than stepping up? Yeah, like, right you know, like... Yeah, like, I mean, the stories that you talk about, I think we can all relate to. We've been in situations where we've done things which weren't how we would do them with hindsight experience, which is fine. The difference maybe between somebody who has hindsight experience and somebody who has no remorse is what makes you and me potentially, and hopefully the listeners as well, reflective and not a psychopath who doesn't understand that that behavior is not acceptable that you can't go on and treat people like that. And so we've all done it. I don't think we can stand up and say that we are morally, um, you know, transparent in the sense that everything we've ever done has been correct. We've all done wrong things. And I think that, you know, this is kind of what's interesting about morals. The more I look into it and moral leadership is that you mentioned Putin, for example, um, charming guy, everybody that's interacted with him at the diplomatic level, says he's a charmer and he plays that game that you talk about, right? And that's the difference between us and them is that, you know, we understand that that's not us or that they will use that game to get where they need to get to and not have any kind of reflection or remorse in the pathway to get there. And I was reading, there's a great book, Winter is Coming by Gary Kasparov, the world former world chess champion and also critic of putin and amazing book documenting the rise of putin's people mm. and interestingly he says that putin believes he's morally right mm. he believes that you know he pines for the old days you know he used to obviously work in the intelligence services in the old soviet empire based out in east berlin but he believes he's right and he believes the west is wrong so he is putting on this face to placate the West to mollify the criticism of him, right? And to win over and just play that diplomatic game with people. It's very interesting what Kasparov says. And there's one line I picked out, which I think makes us think about moral leadership. He says, somehow people always forget that it's much easier to install a dictator than to remove one. Mm. And you think about that, whether it be Putin or some of the morally questionable leadership that we've witnessed in the UK in recent years, mm. or wherever, wherever you are in the world, whether it's politics in any world or business, that these people know how to get into power and they appear very charming. Mm. And probably they're not dictatorial in their complete nature, but once they get in, and we've seen this, once they get in, and often they get in through the electoral process. I mean, Hitler got in through you know, the back door of an electoral process. Let's not forget that, right? And if you, that is, and Putin as well, you know, he was the last man standing when, what's his name? Yeltsin was on the way out. Mm. They did the deal and then Putin took over, right? Mm. 
So, you know, these people at the time, when if you ask anybody at the time to talk about that person, they say, you know, he's a good chap, quite quiet. You know, kept himself to himself, good operative. Nobody ever saw in them that they were a dictator. No, and you're so spot on. There's a cracking book worth reading, and certainly the audio version is very good. I'm listening to it. I've listened to it, and my wife, Lee, is listening to it now. And it's called The Age of the Strongman by Gideon Rackman mm. from The Economist. Really good book. <clears throat> and he talks about nearly all of these people, how they began well. Uh, Kigali in, in Rwanda, you know, began mm. well, but gets worse. You know, Xi Jinping began well, gets more autocratic. Uh, Erdogan began well, gets more autocratic. Um, uh, whether Trump began well is, uh, uh, you know, depends on your leaning uh, Republican or Democrat. <clears throat> well, uh, well, uh, yeah, that's right. That's yeah, well, uh, oh, uh. <laughs> um, but I think the point is that these these leaders, yeah, we we do vote for them, and I think if the lesson we take for ourselves mm. is to have, I, I find what's helpful, what's helped me, um, because. You know, whatever you've been through, making poor decisions, decision making is key. Judgment is key. And I think at times my judgment has been poor. I hope it's better now. I mean, mm. you know, many years ago, I went through a divorce. That's not a pleasant thing. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. And nobody comes out well from that. No one. Um, so I would say I try and think of my father or my mother or someone who had a, a good moral compass, a sense of true north. And I think in a behavior is that like me that's that's mm. not like me mm. that is like me and so you always try and try and calibrate what you will do and what you won't do i think it was Oscar. that's Wilde. the word calibrate right yeah yeah uh, you know a gentleman or a lady is someone who knows what they will do and what they won't do mm. so, so of the top inspiring leadership role models that you and i spoke about last time you had mm. some some good uh people to mention do you want to say uh, from those what you thought brought out integrity values and a strong moral compass a true north and, mm. and where they drifted uh, and and lost their bearings yeah um well I, let's give you let's share one i think stayed pretty true strong moral compass martin luther king and he I, a good mark of moral character i think is where they do what's right as opposed to what's popular. Obviously, that's all subject to interpretation, but to to risk being unpopular, which is that comfort, the collude aspect you talk about, to risk being unpopular, to do to take people where they that's where they need to go rather than when they want to go. That's what a good leader does. It's the path of most resistance. That's a good, that's a true sign of leadership, is that when this person is given influence and power and money and access how do they use it do they use it to further their own gain or do they use it sometimes to be unpopular but to take us to the right place that we need to go and i think martin luther king did that and I, i'm sure if you unearth his story there are inconsistencies in it right as right. they would be in any human story in, in his in his relationships with other women he he did yeah come, come sure yeah Exactly. I mean, it's not going to, you can hold a, a light to it and you're going to find something sooner or later because he's a human being, right? But on, like you say, it's the calibration on balance. He's definitely done more good than not good, right? So he's, 
he's definitely, I would put, of the leaders we talked about in the camp of somebody who has strong moral leadership, who has passed the test. He's taken the path of most resistance. And yet we didn't mention him as a, an inspiring leader, but I think it's a really good example of everything we talked about today. He's not a politician. So, I mean, politicians are easy prey here because <laughs> they seem to attract them. They seem to be like moths to the candle of, you know, the politics, these uncompromising people. But anyway, I would put Lance Armstrong in this camp of people who I think has been an interesting character who has definitely failed the test. Mm, Lance definitely. Armstrong being, yeah. you know, well, previously one of the most successful cyclists of all time, seven times Tour de France winner. Most, as he always said, I'm the most tested athlete on the face of the planet. He was correct, but he managed to hoodwink and cheat his way through drug tests for years. And I watched the, there's a great documentary. I think it's on Amazon Prime called The Programme recommend it to your listeners is about the story of Lance and how it wasn't just the cheating because it was also, you know, live strong foundation. He, it was always, Oh, how can he be a cheat or a doper? He's raised $250 million for charity and all these kids with cancer. Look what he's doing all the good, all that sort of stuff. And so, the, and there was huge amount of bullying and exploitation mm. in all of this. Yet, if you listen to Lance Armstrong's podcast, The Move, which discusses the Tour de France, it's actually pretty good, <laughs> which is the irony. It's like when, it's, when he just talks about cycling, I can listen to the guy. But if you're on the other end of it, wow. Yeah. Some horror stories. I think yeah. great example of somebody, he didn't set out to cheat or to lie or to bully people, but he just found himself in this position and it was just you know, every time he was in public and they kept asking him, Lance, are you, are you doping? Or he'd say, no, 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 don't be stupid. And he'll call people out and he had to double down and double down and double down. And eventually he went on Oprah and said, yes. When they asked him, did you ever take performance enhancing drugs or banned substances? I think it's a great example of just, you know, these stories where people lose control. Yeah. Yeah. And it just spirals. And they say that people who are lying and cheating, you know, people who have had affairs, things, eventually they want to tell the person they've cheated on what they've done. They can't hang on to it any longer. It's just eating them up. Even the, the robber who's got the you know, million pounds eventually gives himself up and comes in. Not always. <clears throat> Sometimes they're still out there having a good time. Um, and then they join the Conservative Party. Um, so, so uh, but, it's easier uh, than robbing banks. It's easier than robbing banks. Um, but, but I, I think in in the ones that I looked at, you know, Queen Elizabeth II, I haven't come across situations where she's lacked integrity. I've had mm. situations where she's done tough things to do the right thing for the country and for the family, and she's taken the hit. She hasn't been popular because we have moved into this populist movement. And, and when she came into uh, connection with Diana, that was a very interesting one because Diana had almost goddess-like status for, for me mm. as a young man. You know, I, I had sad man at Sandhurst. She was about my age. I had a picture of her on the wall and, you know, and <laughs> Prince Charles and her getting married. You had a chance, Jonathan. Uh, yeah, I didn't. But, uh, but certainly James Stewart took, took his chance and I knew friends who knew him. And, and so she did so much, whether it be for mm. the Halo Trust and things like that. And it's almost like, you know, you put yourself un under attack from trolls by even saying yeah. that she did anything wrong. 
But, you know, whether it be her bodyguard and how close she got to her bodyguard or James Hewitt, who she admitted she had an affair for a year. But you could say, but yet she was married to Charles and he was emotionally distant and he had his own relationship with Camilla, which he hadn't stopped when he'd married her. You know, nobody came out of that well. Mm. Nobody came out of that well. But at the same time, the, the power she had, when I met her, just for my minute of introduction, she made me feel like I was the most important person in the room. And there was loads of people there. She had that great ability to inspire people. Mm. But at the same time, she was a, a, a torture-haunted soul who, who had a complex life. So uh, I think... Maybe that's what made her interesting. I think so. I think so. Is there's yeah. almost like the vulnerability. Bit of empathy. Yeah. yeah. And, and she understood what it was like for other people. And when she went to go to the, the hospital bedside of the child with AIDS and talk. That is exactly the image I just conjured in my head when you started talking about it. And being a kid as well, being that's very impressionable for me mm, mm. because at that time, AIDS was a big thing. Obviously it's very, it's much more controlled now, but it's extremely scary AIDS yeah. back then. And then seeing her hugging a child, I think with AIDS, I was like, wow, isn't she going to get AIDS doing that? Mm. That's your example of committing versus colluding. Yes. I, given that, you know, if I was a kid in that situation, I would have colluded. No way am I going in a hospital wall of AIDS victims. Yeah. But she she used her position of influence and power to good and in a very unpopular way. I think people were very critical of her as well. And then she did the landmines yeah. campaign as well, which is like, wow, it's like good on her. Yeah. What, yeah. you know, what did you do when you're given that platform? Do you use it to help people who don't have a voice? Do you use it to help people who don't have the access and power that you have, or do you use it to consolidate your own? And she was a good example. I'm sure there are lots of examples you could counter to that, but she was a good example of what you say, that committing. Yeah. And what's interesting is, is you get some people who think, I'll become an inspiring leader by reading about somebody else's, sort of stealing their clothes <laughs> and, and trying out what they did. So who do we get? But... I'm sorry, he come, his name comes up again. But Boris decides that he's going to go and shake, <laughs> hands, fan. Shake, shake hands with everybody who's got COVID. Yeah, hello, yeah. hello. I've been in a hospital shaking everybody's hands who's got COVID. Giving everyone COVID. Diana, Diana did this, so it must be good for me. And then he gets COVID and almost dies. But then that almost mm. makes him a bit of a hero because he got there through it. But actually, the old NHS resources were stretched the max to give him everything. Because yeah. if you lose your prime minister... I mean, I remember talking about bodyguards with Diana's bodyguard. There was a friend of mine who was a bodyguard with some American bodyguards. And we had the British prime minister, this was about 10 years ago, and the American president. And the British prime minister had a, had a, a, a team of five looking after him at this event. The Americans had 500. Hmm. And they went, they went, well, you guys don't seem to, you know, you Brits don't seem to really take this very seriously. And he goes, <laughs> body, the British bodyguard says in a very understated way, we haven't lost one of ours yet. <laughs> and I thought that was just lovely, but um, a bit too grim. Um, <laughs> talking from going from leaders to uh, inspiring organizations, hmm. um, you and I were looking online at sort of the most trusted organizations, yeah. uh, most respected brands. And um, it's interesting for readers uh, and listeners rather to to hear what comes up of course you know the starbucks there's rolex mm. there's lego little boots uk google in india toyota in japan uh and 
interesting enough, it, was it uh, Alipay in China? Now, yes. You know, mm. they, these are really quite controversial. So, so often it's the lead, and I'll pass over to you in a minute, Greg, because I'm interested in your view on some of those names and things. It, it's the leader, the CEO, who does set the mm. tone. The tone is set mm. by the top. The fish rots from the head. Another, another good book. Yeah. Um, the, the leaders, we, we can't, what you say, shout so loudly, you can't hear what you're doing. So what, you, what you're doing, shout so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying. So often people think, if I say fine words, if I give a funny speech, they'll forgive me for the fact mm. I'm doing completely the opposite. Um, and the culture of the organization is hugely shaped by the cronies around the CEO mm. or mm. the leader of an organization, a general in, a, in an army, um, a, a president in Sri Lanka and their family, you know, because mm. always in history, it's often been families that keep getting back in there if you're a Marcos in the Philippines or whatever it might be, you know, back, yeah. if you're a Kennedy, but in that way, it was sometimes it's good uh, because there's, there's a, there's a value system that goes with it. What, what's your thought about those kind of brands? And how brands difficult make- one, Jonathan. Yeah. Cause like we're dealing with lots of people. So if you were to take any of these brands, like you mentioned in the list, I'm sure there was, you know, Toyota, Starbucks, Google were in there millions of people connected to these companies. Therefore, there's a whole bunch of shenanigans going on guaranteed. You know, whether that be to some degree flouting laws, not maybe to the extremes of Uber, as we talked about with Travis Kalanick, but you know, bending influence at governmental level, there's all kinds of things going on. Let's let's kind of accept that reality. Mm. And Therefore, when we talk about brands, we have to not see them in absolutes in terms of moral leadership. We have to see that they're better than what else there is. It's a bit like that question about, you know, was the British Empire a good thing? Well, compared to what at the time, right? You know, the British Empire, you know, imperialism today is not a good thing, but compared to what? What was the alternative at the time? And there were many, many bad things that happened in the British Empire and some good things as well. And I think it's the same with brands that we have to see them not in their entirety as black or white, but as shades of gray. Mm. Um, a very long roundabout way to answer the question. But I think, you know, it really comes down to uh, when has a CEO actually stood up and said something you think, well, they actually said what everybody wants them to say or what they're feeling as opposed to a very politically you know, what is the word politically edited answer, which is what they seem to do very well. Mm. So, you know, I think Howard Schultz from Starbucks has done that pretty well. I remember years ago, Starbucks is not without blame, but at some point he, he stood up and said, let's talk about race. This was like 20 years ago. Mm. And people just, he was, he was pilloried in public. He said, look, we want to talk about race and diversity. And maybe we didn't use those words back then, but we want to talk about race and privilege and access and so on. You know, we're just Starbucks. We're a coffee company, but let's talk about it. And lots of people said, like, why the hell are you talking? What, what are you to do with it? You know, you're a white guy or you're a coffee company. Why do you, what do you know about slavery? But I thought that was a, a good example of moral leadership for a brand where somebody stood up and said, let's talk about what needs to be addressed. And if these guys aren't going to do it, politicians, I'm going to do it because I have a position of power and influence. So, that scores one point for Starbucks, but you know, on the whole, where does it fall? I don't know. 
Yeah. You know, well, it, you raise such an interesting point. You know, CEOs being open and honest is really important. And um, that they've got to really believe in what they do. And, and so, for example, when they've had a product that's gone out, that's got a fault in it or someone's uh, tampered with it, they have to withdraw it all. Or mm. that their cars have like VW, you know, they were doing the emission scandal. They have to own up to it, clear out the clear out the dishonesty, which is probably cultural, and start again. There's that classic one. I'm not sure if you remember, years ago, 1992, chairman attack on one of his own product, hastens the company declined with 330 shops closed afterwards. Ratner's jewelry yeah. train, admitted the first time it's that shit. this business was decisively wounded when former chairman Gerald Ratner described one of its products as total crap. Yeah. <laughs> and then the whole thing fell apart. But I mean, but, but probably it was. And he was just saying, I was, but why is he producing total crap? Why don't they produce good quality yeah. stuff? So interesting. That's quite one. severe though, wasn't it? That, but that you was, know, yeah. Elon Musk gets away with that now. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's, you know, I, maybe because like nobody knew who Gerald Ratner was or nobody knew, you know, like it was a time when CEOs didn't have a face or a voice. No, no. So like Elon Musk is you know terrible in some of the things that he says in public, like morally questionable. Yeah, yeah. Like, world's richest man, so go figure. Yeah, and, and of course he's he's caught up in some interesting shenanigans with Twitter, <laughs> with Twitter, uh, where he he wants to go back on. Or the fathering children. Oh uh, really? Yeah. Okay. I haven't haven't come across that but, one. Yeah, it was like yeah, something came out. I was thinking about talking about it tonight. It's like a couple of weeks back. He's he's. Somebody in one of his companies has said that he's had twins with Elon Musk. And it's interesting because, you know, some people were outraged by it. Like, that's lack of clear morals, you know. But, you know, I thought, well, two consenting adults, what's the problem? Where's the lack of morals there? So that's kind of interesting is that people accept that. Now. That's fine. It is interesting how, how things shift. But I, I think everybody has to have their true north, which is actually, I was going to move on to books. And mm. I thoroughly enjoyed and do recommend uh, an excellent book called Discover Your True North by Bill George. And mm. Bill uh, had been a CEO beforehand in uh, a couple of companies, uh, was trying to get to the top of one company and realized he wasn't going to make CEO, stepped across to Metronics and became uh, understudied someone for a while there. And eventually in his turn became the CEO and the culture was very good. And he's lectures at Harvard where I, I went on my program there and they were all talking about Bill George's this idea of your true north, whatever the weather, whether it's day or night or in thick fog, if mm. you have a true north, you know how to navigate. It's when you lose that sense of true north that you become like politicians we've discussed and, and leaders of uh, CEOs of businesses where people cannot trust. They are not worthy of trust. They're not trustworthy. And mm. therefore the culture begins to suck, as they say, and they get bad reviews on Glassdoor and things like that, where people say, it's really not nice here. Don't come here. And these days, uh, my children who are 26 to 30, uh, the four of them and, and their friends, for them, they, they'll never kind of get the wealth that their parents got because things are very different, the environment they're in. But they do want good experiences and they want mm. to work for a company and a culture that does have integrity. They're not prepared to sell their soul to get the Ferrari working for a bullish bracket investment bank because they don't matter what you do as long as you, you sell mortgage-backed securities, which are a pile of crap, like Gerald Ratner was talking about, uh, but you package them up as their AAA rating and please buy these, they're really good for you. 
and I'll make a great commission and I can retire at 40 with a Ferrari. Um, so what's, what's your books that you recommend? Uh, there's lots of great books. Mentioned a few before. When it comes to moral leadership, I like the one that you talked about, the idea of True North. I think it's extremely powerful. It's more about, you know, that we have this sort of default baseline, which we revert to, the median. Right? We revert to the median. And just so, you know, okay, there may be times when we act morally above the median or below the median, right? But we revert to it as you do. A great book, Talking with Strangers, Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, yeah. And there's a whole section in it where he talks about the encounter between Hitler and Chamberlain. Chamberlain, who, it, as interestingly, the revisionists of history have painted him as a failure because he appeased Hitler and failed. You know, he came back, famous picture of him standing, coming off the airplane, holding a piece of paper, and said, you know, this is my agreement with Mr. Hitler, that he won't invade Poland. Um, very interesting, like Malcolm Gladwell goes into depth about the meeting between Hitler and Chamberlain, and Hitler was a bloody nice guy, according to Chamberlain. You know, he was just like one of us, gentlemen. You know, a little bit strange in his sort of eating habits, but he was to be trusted. And, and Chamberlain very much relied on his assessment of this person to judge his moral integrity. Very interesting with hindsight. I mean, mm. in hindsight, he could have turned out to be right. And Hitler thought Hitler could have been a nice guy who just kind of, you know, maybe was a little bit misunderstood by... Uh, the British media, but obviously not. And that's why Chamberlain has not done well in terms of historical perspective. Very interesting quote, though. I want to bring this out, get your thoughts on it, Jonathan, because um, this is used in the context of so many scenarios, not just Hitler, but also Bernie Madoff, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm, yeah. the great big swindle, Jimmy Savile, Vladimir yeah. Putin. Um, he said, uh, Gladwell writes, to assume the best about another is the trait that has created modern society. Those occasions when our trusting nature gets violated are tragic, but the alternative to abandon trust as defense against predation and deception is worse. So what Gladwell's saying is that these morally questionable people exploit this natural trusting mechanism in society, you and I, I know you've, you've talked about some experiences as well. People have, you know, have violated that trust, whether in business and so on. Um, but without that, we can't function as a society. So that puts us in an interesting quandary, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, isn't there that lovely quote, whoever might have said it? Uh, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Hmm. Um, I, possibly back to John Stuart Mill. Uh, who, who might have said it. But I think there's this point about, do we commit to doing the right thing or do we collude and take the easy option out, which doesn't require much courage? You just fit in with others. Uh, you don't put your head above the parapet because if you do, it gets shot. You don't say, um, I mean, I'm enjoying Ray Dalio's book, Cha The Change mm. in World Order. Fascinating, particularly about China and how the next war between America and China, and China is the great superpower that will rule the world going forward. It's fascinating with all his analysis of all the way back to the 1200s, uh, and indeed the Ming Dynasty and, and all the rest. But um, it, it's this point about, are we going to say something and stand up for doing the right mm. thing? Or are we going to collude and go with everybody else because it's the easy thing? 
And, and, we, and, and he, Ray Dalio said, I'm conscious that by standing up and talking about this, I'll get lots of trolling from mm. Americans who don't like my pro-China stance. And if the Chinese don't like what I've said, I can get attacked there. I get attacked by both sides. But I, I'm still determined to say the right thing. Well, that's fine when he's a billionaire uh, and, you know, uh, Bridgewater Associates, you know, has made him much money. But of course, he lost all his money and then he made it all over again. But I, I just think whoever we are, if we can be known for doing the right thing and saying the right thing mm-hmm. and not trying to be popular, but being respected, um, then people will call out when they think someone like Jimmy Savile is abusing people and doing horrendous sexual predatory work on different people, even though he's a very nice man and doing Jim will fix it. And Bernie Madoff has been persuading people to be part of a Ponzi scheme, even though it's not healthy and it's not good for us. I think it's fascinating. Um, Let's just go for uh, a teaser for next month. Mm. uh, What we've got coming up uh, and then what have we got? Before we, um, before we end with appreciating equality about each other from today's session, maybe final thoughts from each of us. So next week, we're going to go into the second component of uh, the Inspiring Leadership Compass, which you can see on my website, jonathanperks.com, which is PQ, about meaning and purpose, purpose quotient. Mm. So are you living your life on purpose or are you living life off purpose? Do you have a sense of vocation, a calling, a sense of duty and doing something which makes a difference in the world or you're just doing it to pay off the mortgage so graham what's your thoughts on uh final thoughts on this and and the look forward to uh meaning and purpose next month yeah i'm looking forward to that final thoughts one thing we didn't mention today but would love to hear thoughts from your audience about this in the malcolm gladwell book there's this concept of the holy fool and he says the holy fool is a truth teller because he is an outcast You know, those who are not part of existing social hierarchies, maybe Eton, for example, are free to blurt out inconvenient truths or question things that the rest of us take for granted. And these holy fools are around us all the time. You know, they were, you know, when Bernie built his Ponzi scheme or Jimmy Savile was doing his thing or Putin was rising to power or whatever it may be, there was a holy fool who is calling them out constantly and saying, hey, this isn't right, something's going on. And people looked at that person and said, shut up, holy fool. Mm. So question to everybody is how do we give a voice to those holy fools when we need them? Because maybe we do need them from time to time to give us a bit of perspective. I don't know if they're around us or what kind of stage they have, but we kind of need them, right? Yeah, I, I think it's it's so good. Um, uh, well, there's a, that lovely one you remind me of. I think it's a Turkish proverb. When an ox enters a palace, it does not become a king, but the palace turns into a barn. <laughs> and I think the, the similar, similar thing was uh, given to when you put a crown on a clown, it makes it into a barn, not a palace. Um, <laughs> and um, so I think, I, I think I've really enjoyed, I just want to perhaps end mm. with appreciation. I've really enjoyed... Uh, your breadth and depth of knowledge of this topic, how how much it means to you. And I found you personally to be a man of the highest of integrity, but yet with the humility, humanity and humor to laugh at yourself Mm. when like me, you fall short again and again and you pick yourself up and you dust yourself off, got that wrong, made a mistake. I'm going to sort it out. So 
So Graham, thank you. I, I appreciate you as a, a, a fellow presenter, but also a fabulous storyteller. So that's my appreciation of you. Thank you, Jonathan. Appreciation for Jonathan. Yeah, like just creating a platform for these conversations. I really appreciate that. Maybe we are the holy fools, Jonathan. We're having this conversation, but it needs to be had. And hopefully some of the things we talked about today resonated with your listeners. You know, hopefully somebody said, wow, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I've done that or I was thinking that. So, you know, that takes a bit of bravery to create a space for that. You could easily, so easily, Jonathan, make leadership about management 2.0, which it isn't absolutely. You know, they say if you want to, if you gave managers a task to get to the moon, they would have built a taller tower. You know, leadership's about completely disrupting things, right? And I think you've done that. And I love what you're doing with this podcast and privileged to be part of the journey. Well, Graham, thank you. And um, just to say to everyone listening to this, we're looking forward to every week uh, on Inspiring Leadership. You can hear different guests we have, but Graham and I do our session every month. And um, I'm really looking forward to this one coming out shortly. Um, and also remember that if this appeals to you and you want to become a better, more inspiring leader, or you want some of the people who work with you to, or your team to get better, reach out. You'll find me on my website, jonathanperks.com. And if you want Graham and his team to be your podcast host or be your agents, uh, pickal.com. So guys, great to be with you. A real, uh, a real privilege and keep inspiring leadership wherever you are. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.